Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First up is PaulKit. Did I say it right? PaulKit? Paul, policy. Yeah, PaulKit. Policy Kit is what, it's, what it means. P-O-L-K-I-T is how it is spelt. Policy Kit is a kind of a, I'm going to say, a reinvention of, or you could say an iteration of, but it, or, or a, an, an expansion of traditional Unix privileges in a way. Don't panic, we're not changing Unix yet. But PaulKit recognizes that a lot of modern Linux users, BSD users, use a GUI desktop. This is a project um, sort of um, fostered by the Free Desktop Organization. So you can go to, I think, paulkit.freedesktop.org, I think. And, and read more about it. The The best way to read about it, though, honestly, is doc.opensuse.org slash documentation slash leap slash security slash html slash book dash security slash cha dash security dash paulkit.html. They've got great documentation on it. I mean, they explain it so well. And basically, to sum it up, you know, traditionally on Linux, if you, if you want to do something that is considered a system, system-wide, then you need to be root user. And someone came along and said, okay, well, that's a little bit that's a little bit much. Let's stop requiring people to just drop to root all the time and instead give them like this sort of uh, little doorway um, called sudo, C-S-U-D-O. They could just use sudo to temporarily grant themselves root, root privileges to do a thing. So that worked pretty well for a while. But then you may have run into this at one point in your life if you've been using Linux for a while. Sometimes you might start something and or you might need to start a, a, an application you, you might need to do something as root but you need to do it through your gui so for instance maybe you need to edit a configuration file in slash etc well what do you do well you can do sudo sudo uh, space emacs space slash etsy slash myconfig and that'll launch an emacs session as as a sudo user if you don't have sudo on your system though if you, you could drop down to like, you could just become root and maybe do that in the terminal or something. It's, it's, it's complex because the GUI belongs to your user. And if you then drop to root and try to do things within the GUI, it doesn't always work out because the, the environment is completely different. There are ways around it. There are things that happen that that can make certain, you know, you can change the environment, you can, you can make it happen. It is often not, it's not the smoothest of experience. And in, in, in some, some cases at one point, it was, I don't want to say impossible, but I mean, it was, it was worth logging out and logging back in as root for a moment to just to do a thing. So that the, the GUI side of computing and the the just the simple, quick, simple, like, I just want to run a command with root privileges those two things were kind of clashing, and PaulKit helps smooth that out really, really drastically. PaulKit developers write XML policy files, and they identify things that within their application might need, you know, privileged access, and then they define whether that whether that aspect of their application ought to be accessible 
by non-privileged users, even though there's some component of this thing that's running as a privileged user. I mean, a, a really sort of obvious use case for, or maybe not a full use case, but for example, a virtual machine. Libvirt is running on your system. You're running a virtual machine. Well, as far as Libvirt knows, this is a super privileged uh, process. Like this is a root process that normal users they don't have access to the engine. They get to run their virtual machines, but they don't get to just like change the definition of their virtual machines themselves. They don't get to stop the entire virtualization environment. I mean, what if there are other users on the system using things? That would just, you can't do that. That would be a disaster for somebody. So, Paul Kit. Now, you can look at all the different Paul Kits available, or the, the policies rather, uh, available by typing in PK action. That'll take up your entire screen. So you might want to do PK action pipe to less or more or most, whatever you use. And then it lists a bunch of things. Org.freedesktop.udisks2.loopsetup. Org.gnome.gconf.defaults.setmandatory. Org.libvert.api.secret.delete. Things like that. Like I say, lots of stuff here that, you know, you can just kind of imagine, like, what if we just gave anybody access to these things? Or, you know, what if we didn't give people access to these things? So PK action dash A, well, let's find out what that means. Dash dash help. PK action dash dash action dash ID, and then the name of something that you've seen uh, in your list of PK action. So for instance, let's look at org.freedesktop.udisks.cancel-job-others. That seems like something we probably wouldn't want everyone to be able to do. And then to see the actual detailed information, you do need to do dash dash verbose. Okay, so that's PK action, dash dash action dash ID, org.freedesktop.udisks.cancel dash job dash others space dash dash verbose and that gives you all the information about this policy says the description cancel a job initiated by another user message authentication is required to cancel a job initiated by others vendor the udisks project vendor earl udisks.freedesktop.org icon drive dash removable dash media Implicit any no, implicit inactive no, implicit active auth underscore admin. I don't know what half of that means, but I think you probably get the gist of it. The message here is that in order to cancel a job initiated by another user within a, you know, a, a, someone else's virtual machine, you do need to authenticate as root. That is not a privilege we're going to grant just anybody. We do want to ensure that people can do that if they have the privileges but we don't want to, to just let anybody do that just because they're impatient for a job to finish or, or they, they feel like someone else is taking up too much CPU time or wh whatever. That's an example of a, of a policy. There are lots of other policies. I mean, PK action, as I said, that'll show you all of them and you can kind of look through a bunch of those. And so when you're on the desktop and you try to do a thing that requires higher permissions, you don't have to log out of your desktop, log back in as root, launch the application, you know, that's not what you have to do. You don't have to drop down to a terminal and switch over to root and then figure out pgrep and try to get to the button essentially that you want to push as root. And that might literally not be something that you can do without logging out and logging back in as root. So, so Paulkit makes that theoretically 
possible, uh, uh, until it doesn't, in which case it's likely an intentional omission, and, and that is part of the advice of using PolKit as a developer. Don't provide permissions to something that you don't intend people to get to. You know, because, I mean, I imagine there's temptation for a developer to just, well, I've got PolKit here, I, I, I should make everything available to anyone with the correct or the, the desired privileges. But if you don't see why an, a regular user would need access to a a thing then then don't provide that it 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 feels wrong to to even say it as a user to say it it just feels wrong like what why are you limiting my access to an application that i own that i've compiled myself well it isn't that obviously you can always run it as root and do whatever you want to but it doesn't make sense for you to be able to do something that under the expected use case of that application you you don't need to elevate your privileges to do this thing you just do it as a user that's what the application is for next on the list is poplar poplar p-o-p-p-l-e-r I used I I for the longest time thought this was poplar p o p l a r like the tree I think is that how you spell poplar I don't really know but I I thought it was a reference to the tree I guess it's not it's something else there's a, a link from the pay, the poplar dot freedesktop dot org page about why they chose the name and it, it links to something some Wikipedia article about uh, a Futurama episode or something, but I'm sure Poplar predates that, but maybe Futurama is older than I realized. Either way, Poplar is a PDF rendering library. I guess it was developed for XPDF, but it can be used by other things and indeed is. Uh, Certainly off the top of my head, Inkscape uses Poplar to import PDFs. So when I say that it's a PDF rendering library, what does that mean? It means, oh, actually, you know what? Here's a non-exhaustive list of programs that use Poplar. So events for the, the GNOME PDF viewer, I think. Ocular, that's definitely the KDE um, PDF viewer, probably my favorite PDF viewer that I'm aware of. ePDF view, never heard of it. Logo PDF, never heard of it. GIMP, heard of it. Q all in one, haven't heard of that one. Q PDF view, I may have used that before. So those are using the popular library through some kind of API, some other other um, sort of well, uh, what language or what framework are you using it through? So. Uh, for instance, Events uses Glib, which has which Poplar provides an API for. Ocular and Q All in One and Q PDF View, as you might guess, use the Qt Five specifically um, API to 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 popular to, to Poplar Poplar Gimp doesn't use a front end for Poplar; it just uses Poplar. ePDF View looks uses Glib and so on. Okay, so PDF rendering library. What that means is, well, something's got to, like, decode the PDF, right? I mean, a PDF is, uh, if we if we imagine it, we could say it's a very, very strict and very uh, precise, ideally, um, 
version of, let's just say this, this is not true, but let's just say it arbitrarily because it's a language we most of us can probably speak. It's it's HTML, except for pa paper, right? I mean, it's not. It, it isn't at all like that. If you've ever looked at the internals of PDF, you would groan at me saying, uh, at me daring to, to make it seem similar to HTML. It's nothing like HTML. HTML is far superior, but but HTML doesn't doesn't have any sense necessarily of strict boundaries. Uh, HTML tries to fill space. It, it, it is meant for the screen specifically. HTML doesn't really ever know that it's going to be printed, and I think. In my world, at least, it feels like HTML is probably rarely printed. Whereas PDFs, I really, it was called a pre-flight application at one point in its life. It was meant as a sort of a f very fancy and very precise preview of what you were going to get out of your printer after you pressed print on some fancy desktop design application like Quark Express, which probably still exists, uh, Adobe InDesign, or for us open source folk, Scribus. That's what PDF is designed to do. So it is very strict. It is very, not strict, it is very precise, meaning if you've got a box, a text box, um, that is meant to be exactly 150 centimeters wide. Well, obviously your screen doesn't know what that means, but the paper does. That matters for paper. So when we render a PDF, we need to make sure that we decide what portion of the screen is zero centimeters and how far across the screen then is 150 centimeters. And that depends on how, how much we're zoomed in and all these other things. No matter what, though, we need to make sure that that box goes from 0 to 150 centimeters every single time. And the text inside of that box needs to be within that box, uh, padded by some amount of picos or millimeters or however you want to measure it every single time, proportionate to everything else. We also need to make sure that that text is in the font that the designer, the, the producer of the PDF, has specified. And because PDF is just a kitchen sink format where you can do whatever you want, PDF can you can embed fonts into a PDF file. So your PDF renderer, the thing that's drawing it on the screen and making sure that that box is 0 to 150 centimeters based on the zooming amount and the, the resolution of your screen, making sure that the text is within that box, making sure that the text is a certain font, that library needs to understand how to understand the, the font inclusion in a PDF and how to use that font, and it needs to be able to substitute that font if, if that font is not on your system and is not embedded in the PDF. All kinds of things like that need to be figured out by something, and instead of every single person who wants to render a PDF on your screen visually, instead of every single developer trying to figure out how to do all that, just use Poplar instead. So poplar.freedesktop.org, that's the website. Go there now. Oh, and I forgot. Po Poplar, so there's Polkit and Polkit Gnome and Polkit Cute. I was supposed to mention this before going straight into Poplar. Uh, Polkit Gnome is, you know, the Gnome-specific stuff for Polkit. Polkit Cute is the cute stuff for Polkit. And then there was Poplar, okay. So, and then there's Poplar Data, which um, consists of 
encoding files, so things specific to languages that aren't the default language of Poplar, which would be English probably. I haven't looked, but I'm assuming that that's probably the default. Um, so if, if you need specialized uh, linguistic support and stuff, Poplar data would probably be the place that would include all that stuff. Now let's talk about Popt. P-O-P-T. P-O-P-T is... Um, I don't know what the P stands for in the f at the front, but think about, maybe it means parse, options, O-P-T, O-P-T, options, P, maybe parse options. Anyway, popped is indeed a C library to parse options or to parse uh, command argument uh, parameters, the arguments that you put after a command. So, for instance, if you do a um, foo, dash dash help, then dash dash help is uh, an argument, an option, dash o, that's an option. Now all those options get passed into a C program under the umbrella of argv and argc, the arg count and the arguments themselves. They get ingested by the C application, like the C, your C application, and this isn't just for C, most applications that you can run from a terminal, uh, most programming languages, they expect that when you issue the the command that launches that application, that there might be some arguments afterwards. And this, this is true of more applications than you may even realize. So, for instance, in, ter in a terminal, if you type in um, dolphin, for instance, on, on, on a plasma desktop dolphin dash dash help that that's a legitimate command like that's it will your terminal will give you a help menu or a help uh, list of of options available for the dolphin file manager interestingly so you can do this as for instance uh you could do dolphin dash dash split and then hit return uh and you get the dolphin uh, a dolphin window in its uh, split mode. That actually didn't work on my system. <laughs> As I, I mean, I don't have to tell you that. I can pretend like it did, but it didn't. Um, <laughs> that it brought up the previous window that I had opened, but it didn't didn't do it in a split view. Um, let's try let's try something different. Uh, let's try dolphin dash dash select. The files and folders passed as arguments will be selected. Okay, how about music with a capital M and then maybe a tilde to make it go to my home? I don't know if that's going to work. It brought me to slash home. Okay, can I tell it where to go? Sorry, I'm getting kind of distracted at this point. This None of this matters. Um, okay, so anyway, you can... There, there are lots of applications with uh, that that just read in the things that you type in after the application and that that you just get that for free that's just what a programming language and a terminal that's how they interact but what do you do with that information that's the question because you can do like echo hello and it spits back hello at you but how did the author of echo know to to sort of provide you with the word hello and not well here's a great echo help it just echoes help echo dash dash help and it echoes dash dash help 
Like how how is that happening? How does the how does the author of this program know sort of not to 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 take what you've given it even if it looks like an option and return it to you instead of erroring out and saying, hey, I don't know what that option means. Uh, or for that matter, how does any application know that you've given it an option and what to do with that option? Well, someone has to parse the the, the strings of text that you send to that application. And the parsing is done you know, in the source code in some block of code designed to parse options. And there are lots of different ways to do this. You can do this manually. Like you can write your own rules and just say, well, hey, look, if you if you see two dashes then and no space, then whatever's after those two dashes is a long option. If you see a single dash and a letter, then that's a short option. And if there's a space or an equal sign, then that's the argument to the option. Unless it's a space and another dash, then that's a new option. You know, so you can you can do the logic and figure it out, but there are libraries such as Popped to do this for you. Now, Popped man page is very, very good. If you do man Popped, it tells you what it does and really kind of like how it does it and and it's a really good read. It is probably about, I don't know, 10 screenfuls of reading. So let's call it seven, 10, 10 pages, whatever, um, of text. But a lot of that, a good chunk of that, like one, two, yeah, about two screenfuls on my, on my monitor. It's about, let's call it a hundred and no, not a hundred. And let's call that 60 lines of text. Uh, there is a sample application. So I'm going to, I mean, you can look at it and you get, you can kind of get the feel for how popped works. Uh, I am just going to do a man popped and redirect that, that output into a file called, uh, man pop, popped, man popped, uh, dot C. And I'm just going to remove everything but the example. I'm not going to read the whole example out. Um, if it was a short example, I would, but it's it's quite long. It is, now that I've got it in the text editor, I can tell you exactly. It's 85 lines as included in the man page. So that is um, with all the white space and all the comments and stuff like that. But you kind of, we'll, we'll just kind of briefly include pops.h and standardio.h void usage okay so usage this is their help menu i'm assuming uh and it's popped print usage okay yep uh f print standard error quote percent sign colon percent s zero comma error comma addle call me crazy but i think there's a there's a missing quote there, right? Because if it's if it's a standard error, f print standard error per, uh, quote percent s colon percent s zero comma there should be a quote after the zero, right? Yes, absolutely. You can't. Yeah. So there's a missing quote. I just piped it in from the man page, so I'm finding it really hard to believe that that is true. But uh, it's actually true. I should probably jot this down so that I can email the author. Um, I don't know if I don't know if this is that important, but I mean, seems seems like someone ought to know about that. Uh, exit. 
exit exit that's another error um you can't have exit without standard lib i don't think um yeah i'm pretty sure we need to include standard lib okay so <laughs> include popped.h i'm getting nervous about this example now uh i'm on line eight and i have found two errors um okay so include popped h include standard io.h and now hash include space uh, bracket standard lib stdlib dot h bracket uh, angle bracket and now and we've got our quote okay now we should be good to go um so int main int arg c this is what i was talking about uh car arg v and then the whole array of whatever we've typed it's defining some different things for argument parsing car c int i equals zero car port name okay so port name is going to be a an option in here int speed equals zero raw equals zero int j car buff buff size plus one popped context opt opt con um struct creating a struct so i think this is the um this is going to be the content the, the, these are the options being defined bps or b so dash dash bps dash b signaling rate in bits per second uh, cr in l i'm not i'm not reading every every bit of code so i'm i'm kind of abbreviating there's a bunch of stuff in here that that i'm just kind of skimming uh cr in l or c so that it'll be a dash dash cr in l or a dash c expand cr characters to cr cr slash lf sequences i don't know if it actually does any of this or is this all just you know foobar greek uh hw flow h so that'll be something to look for. No flow in raw raw uh, dot r sw flow software flow control port auto help. Okay, so here's something interesting, right? So we know that in the int main uh, definitions, we've got uh, something called port name car port name. But I am noticing that it is not. There's nothing about a port in the options so i believe we're going to experience that the options we will see should be bps crnl hw all the ones that i just said and then the leftover option the thing that we don't part or well we'll parse it but the thing that doesn't get defined anywhere else becomes the port name so that's the the leftover argument essentially and that's an important thing to account for if you're writing your own parsing algorithm which you can do um i do it in bash uh, i do it the patrick volkerding method where you just list you do an if if else loop well if else else if uh break loop where you catch everything that you can possibly catch you shift to the next argument you go back up to the top, catch everything you can catch, shift, and so on, until you run out. And then you just dump everything left over into an array or into a variable and assume that that's the thing that you, you know, that's that's the thing that didn't get defined anywhere else. Therefore, it must be the thing that we're operating on or, or you know, whatever. You, you kind of, it's, it's sort of the one thing without an option must be the thing that we're, you know, normally uh, processing. Okay, so that's um that was the 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 
options, the valid options being defined within a struct. Then there's a while loop, and it says now do option processing git port name. Cool. Uh, while c equals pop to git next opt is greater than or equal to zero, then we look through this thing. And we're just looking for a, a case of C, a case of H, a case for S, a case of N. Those should all sound vaguely familiar, and they are because those are things that are defined as uh, options in the struct. So we're catching those options. And then what's left over is the port name. So port name equals popped git arg opt con. If port name equals equals null, or if it popped peak arg opt con, I don't know what any of that means, equals equals null, then the usage, we trigger the usage and we say specify a single port, e.g. dev cua0. Okay, so again, I don't know if this is even for real or what, but, but that that should trigger. If we don't provide a port name, then skimming this code at least, uh, we should get sort of a message saying, hey, here's how to use this command. Um, if an error occurred during the option parsing, do something else, and then print out the options and the port name chosen. Okay, so yeah, this is all fake. Uh, so print F, so it's gonna tell you, it'll, it'll tell us what options we we told it, so it's a bit of an, a, a very over-complex echo uh, command, essentially, and print the port name that you chose to create. Cool. Alright, so with those changes made, I think there's a, a, a possibility that this could work. We do need to compile it, as you do, so we'll do gcc uh, dash l to include the library, p-o-p-t, GCC knows where to find P-O-P-T. It's, I've told it, dash L. So it's going to look in the, the library directories of my system, uh, of my, yeah, of my uh, operating system as defined by package config or something. Uh, dot slash manpop dot C and then dash O, we'll just call it manpop. Okay, so now we got warnings. Did get one, one, two, two warnings. Um, that I didn't, I guess, you know, there's something here that I didn't catch. But it did compile. These are just warnings. I think I'm just gonna ignore those warnings right now. I've already fixed two bugs. I, I don't need to worry about the, the warnings as well. And I'm gonna do a dot slash man popped with no arguments. And, luckily, it, it provides usage. It says, uh, here's the usage. Man popped, and then it tells me the, the different options that are available to me. The different options are a dash B or dash dash BPS equals BPS, a dash C or dash dash CRNL, dash H, dash dash HW flow. I don't love using the dash H for something that isn't help, but I guess it can't be helped. Dash N for no flow, dash dash no flow, dash R, dash dash raw, dash S, dash dash SW flow, dash question mark or dash dash help and then dash dash usage which of course gives us this message here uh, and then square brackets options close square brackets asterisk bracket port close bracket okay let's just do man popped and then we'll do um i don't know localhost options chosen are, is blank port name chosen localhost 
Um, man dot slash man popped hello world same thing no options but a port name has been defined okay great well let's do uh dot 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 slash man pop dash dash b p s uh equals equal sign eight eight hundred and seventy seven uh megahertz let's just do that uh and then dash dash uh c for the crnl thing uh and then hello world so it says oh no i didn't like that okay so it says usage um is bps port specify a single port such as this one thing okay so what it really wanted was the bps to just be an integer so dash dash bps equals 877 dash c hello world gives me feedback that the options chosen chosen was dash c and dash b877 port name chosen hello world can i add something after hello world let's try dash dash raw yes i can do that so options chosen chosen dash c dash r dash b877 port name chosen hello world and on and on you can do that all day nothing will happen it's just a fake application that doesn't actually do anything but it does demonstrate how through popped you get a lot of sort of built-in functions i don't want to say for free because i mean it's 85 lines of code just for this silly demonstration but do you have to parse do you have to write your own parser no you don't and that's huge that's a big deal it's not that big of a deal in bash it's a huge deal in c it's even a huge i mean honestly it's a huge deal in lua in python in Java, in all the application, uh, all the programming languages, where you're tell, you know, suddenly all of your assumptions get thrown out because they don't exist. Especially in C, I mean, that doesn't assume anything. It assumes that it's got data, uh, and you'd better tell what kind of data it is because it doesn't even know that much. So, um, it using pops, using a, a parsing library, makes it so much easier to just inter help, you know, interact with your user. It'll help your user interact with your application. That's P-O-P-T, popped. It is now time for coffee. Let's go get a cup of coffee. We'll come back and I think actually just get through the P section. I think we'll be done with this section. So let's do that. Go. With not coffee, but Crave. No, actually, it is coffee. I mean, but the coffee is called Crave. Um, this is a uh, a blend. No, not a blend. A, a roast. It is a bag of coffee beans from a company called Hummingbird Coffee. Free trade organic coffee. This is kind of the... Um, this is, for me, probably totally incorrectly, but for me, this is kind of the quintessential kiwi like New Zealand coffee, because it seemed like when I first got to New Zealand, that's all I ever saw was hummingbird coffee. I don't, I, I don't believe it has any 
indication at all over how popular Hummingbird is. It's just, I think that in Wellington, at the volunteer gigs that I would attend, they happened to have gotten Hummingbird, probably because it's fair trade and and they've probably defaulted to that. And it was fine. It was great. Um, it's, It's weird in New Zealand, or it's weird to me anyway, at events... Like or at at like at smallish events, I guess you'll you'll find that they don't tend to have coffee. Like in the states, uh, if I go to an event, I typically think there's going to be coffee. I mean, that's just I don't know. That's often I mean a, an event of a certain kind, right? I mean, like like a volunteer thing that you're doing, or a tech conference, or a game conference, or whatever you're going to. Like certain places that that kind of have like l- the little plate of nibbles or, or the the refreshments coffee's a thing in the in the usa but in the in new zealand it's it's actually not so um, i think most people expect there to be tea and coffee is kind of a bonus and so what i found pretty early on was that most events that i would go to where they would say you know like there's coffee on site or whatever uh, or refreshments or whatever that the coffee would be uh sanka or you know instant coffee and 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 tea or if it wasn't instant coffee which i i refuse to drink instant coffee like just flat out refuse to drink instant coffee i mean i'll have an instant coffee first of all if it is literally the only option um you know, you just put a bunch of milk and sugar and just have, like, a coffee-flavored whatever that would be. So, you know, I'll, that's maybe. But I don't think of that as coffee. That's like, well, it's a compromise is what that is, and it's not a great one either. Uh, but so if they don't have the instant stuff, which is, you know, fortunate, the, then for whatever reason, again, they it seems like they had Hummingbird. So for me, when I see Hummingbird, and it's a kind of a distinctive bag, so I, I see it and I think, oh, that's... That's New Zealand's coffee. Again, probably completely wrong and completely influenced just by a a weird coincidence that this one place I went to that one time had Hummingbird and this other place that I went to another time had Hummingbird. And because it was within the first month of me even living in New Zealand at all, I suddenly thought that, okay, everyone's got Hummingbird coffee. But it, it is, as it turns out very good coffee. This one is called Crave, which, I mean, that's such a, is it a cologne or is it a coffee? Why not both? Um, Crave, that's, it's a great name for coffee. Uh, and, and it feels like a bold name, but it's actually not that bold of a coffee, really, not compared to the, um, the, the other stuff that I had, which I've already, Mahia, is Mahia? Something like that. The, the other stuff. Anyway, I think I have a little bit of that other stuff left over, and then I'm gonna... Uh, so, I'll, so I'll finish the Crave, then the Mahia, and then I've got some new coffee from a, a new place that I went to over this past weekend. I don't have a whole lot of hope for it. I think it's gonna be pretty average, but we'll find out probably in, I don't know, two episodes from now. Okay, so... There's more stuff to go over. Obviously, we're still in the P section. We've gotten through Popped. Now we're on to Pulse Audio. Pulse Audio is the sort of default sound system for Linux right now. Of course, in the previous episode, we were talking about was it the previous or the one before that? One of those two, talking about Pipewire and how it is all but replacing, displacing Pulse Audio. Did some further testing with Pipewire since that episode, and I have run into some minor issues with certain hardware. It's it's touch and go, hard to pin down, but yeah, I might be switching back to Pulse Audio, or I might just be updating Pipewire. We'll find out when I get around to 
to bothering it with it. But anyway, Pulse Audio, that's the thing. It's been around since about, I don't know, let's call it Fedora 7 or 8 or 9. Very early when I was switching to Linux back in 2006, 2007, 2008, that time frame. So this was, I think this was probably probably 2009-ish. Um, Pulse Audio, I mean, I could probably look it up on Wikipedia or something. Um, Pulse Audio was kind of like, it was being rolled out. And it was, I mean, it took a while to get to Slackware. Um, I remember. <laughs> I really, really remember not having Pulse Audio. And it was, as I said in the Pipewire episode, it was not great. Pulse Audio hit, and initially there were problems. People were discovering all of the problems. And I I feel like, I feel like people got, a lot of people got really sort of a bad taste for Pulse Audio from that experience. And that it was one of those things that felt a little bit of an overreaction to me. I felt like people were really, really against Pulse Audio, even though, because it, 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 it changed something and, and what had worked before was no longer working. And so it seemed like not a benefit to them, which is an understandable complaint. Um, I don't know the right answer for, no, I do know the right answer for this. The right answer is for there to be a distribution out there that has the cutting edge technology, call it, I don't know, Fedora. And then there should be another distribution out there that champions stability and doesn't switch to the new technology until the new technology has all but proven itself. And and that's the answer, but that's not what we as Linux users have agreed on because what we have instead is like this cutting edge distribution i don't know call it fedora and then this other distribution that sort of is also kind of actually pretty cutting edge call it ubuntu um and and then you've got other distributions that kind of do things whenever they get around to it and other ones that you know so i don't know i think i feel like people got a bad taste for pulse audio because because, because frankly i i don't think that the distributions are being you know we're, we're not managing that the rollout well we're just kind of including stuff b- based on possibly a little bit of competition b- based on maybe excitement for new technology the, the very real necessity of getting new technology into a distribution and getting it tested and working and so on so there's a lot of kind of weird bad feelings about pulse audio that are historical i think just based on i i think it was a, down to a bad rollout essentially that that's how i feel i unfortunately i don't know who to talk to at the open source offices uh to get this to get a better rollout next time uh, i think pipewire is blessed with the privilege of being a replacement for an existing technology that means people can roll it out when they feel like it's ready because it's not going to add that much new stuff right it's just replacing the old stuff and i do wonder if there's something there in sort of open source practice 
that says if you're a brand new technology, just be on guard <laughs> because people are going to hate you. You you're going to change something, you're making something different. People are going to hate you. But your successor, the thing that changes you because you now work, but you're just being neglected, your successor, man, people are going to love that. Maybe it's more than open source. Maybe that's just how the world works. I'm not sure. But Pulse Audio, brand new sort of concept. It was a sound server. And that's a little bit of a complex concept to understand or it's a complex concept to understand why that's a good thing pulse audio has the ability of of accepting inputs and outputs and signals and it it has the ability then to put it into to put all of these things into pipelines it can it, it can hear it can accept music from a firefox browser and from your music player and direct those streams of audio to the output stream and then on your desktop you can direct that output stream to your speakers or to your earphone and now you've got music and sound from your firefox browser playing at the same time over the same device also wasn't able to do that it didn't have this concept of of what i'm calling pipelines i i um, Pulse Audio calls, call, calls them syncs and 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 streams, I think. Syncs and streams or syncs and sources, something like that. It, it's a little bit confusing, although you, you do you do need to input and output is a little bit of a simplistic view for for audio, so you can't. It's it's better not to call things input and output, although ultimately that is kind of what it is. But anyway. Pulse Audio has the, this concept and, and a layer of abstraction because it's it's running on top of also it's it's running and, and accepting inputs and outputs or syncs and sources or something, and and it it can combine those and mix them and then send them to your speaker so you can hear both at the same time. Also can't do that. It can accept a stream and it can grab a device and plug them together and that's it. There those two those things are now together and you cannot. You cannot interrupt, you can't insert in something into that connection. Like, that's done. That is a connection that is made. If you want to use that output device, you need to unplug the one thing, plug the other thing in. I guess you could even say Pulse Audio is a Y adapter. It's one of those little cables that has one plug on, on one end and then two ports on the other end. That's what Pulse Audio is. I don't think there's a whole lot... Of a, there's no reason really to get it further into Pulse Audio. I mean, that's that's Pulse Audio. Are you using Pulse Audio? P-A-Cuddle, P-A-C-T-L, what is it, info, I think? Type that in, and it'll tell you the server name. Now, right now, I'm my server name is Pulse Audio on Pipewire 0.3.44. So, yes, I'm sort of using Pulse Audio, but actually I'm using Pipewire with, like, a Pulse Audio uh, uh, module or something like that. So, I don't know. Am I using Pulse Audio? I'm not sure. I believe I'm using Pipewire. Well, I am using Pipewire. I believe what it's doing is faking. It's pretending like it's Pulse Audio. That's what I kind of understand. And Pipewire largely does that. I mean, it it's a drop-in replacement for Pulse Audio. So it, it, isn't, it isn't meant to be drastically unique from Pulse Audio. Or it is in some in many ways but it's it is um it's meant to to satisfy the exact same requirements as pulse audio and then whatever else it it's doing um so paCTL is a command that comes with pulse audio it is pa pulse audio you'll find a lot of the pulse audio commands are pa something so pa control pa cuddle 
P-A-C-T-L, is um, the sort of a, a, a direct input, a direct connection, a, a controller for Pulse Audio. So if you do P-A-C-T-L-H or dash dash help, you get all the different commands that are available to you, like P-A-C-T-L status, and that'll tell you what's in use right now and and what what pulse audio is up to uh p-a-c-t-l info gives you a rundown on what pulse audio you're running like what the server name is and what the server version is and the default sample specification and and all these other things p-a-c-t-l exit i don't know that probably exits pulse audio maybe i'm not sure p-a no actually you know what i think that's i think is there an interactive no maybe there's not okay i don't know what exit does uh, list, upload sample, play sample, remove sample, load module, unload module. That's stuff to, uh, remember I was talking in two episodes ago about Pipewire, how it had echo cancellation. There's a pulse audio module for echo cancellation, but Pipewire has it just built in. So that's convenient. Um, and then you can do pulse audio control, like, uh, move a sync input or a source output get a sync, get a source, uh, or get sync, uh, or source, you know, volume or mute that sync or source. So if you, if you see the option in, uh, what is this one? Pavu control, P-A-V-U-C-T-L, um, or just, I guess it's Pavu now. Uh, it's the volume control, uh, which I don't even know how to get there. Honestly, I just type in, I go to my application menu and just type in Pavu and it comes up with uh, Pulse Audio Volume. I guess that's what it's called. Volume Center, uh, Volume Control. Uh, if you see it in there, you can basically do it with PA Control. Um, and and that's a good one to look at. PA, uh, Pavu Control or Pulse Audio Volume Control, whatever. Um, that That's a good application to look at to kind of sort of somewhat visualize pulse audio and what it what it thinks your system is like there's a, a bunch of tabs across the top there's the playback the recording the output devices and input devices which notably are different than playback and recording we i think we tend to think of a very direct relationship between like that speaker there and an output device and while that's true for that one there may be something else that does both you know, something that does like a, um, well, certainly my headphones, it's got an input device, the, the microphone and an output device, which are, you know, a source and a sync, um, which are the, the actual speakers in the headphones. And then there's configuration. And that one kind of just lists everything that it knows exists on your system in terms of audio. Um, and kind of tells you the profile that it's using. So is it does it consider it an analog stereo output device, or is it actually an analog stereo output plus a mono input, or is it uh, something else, analog stereo input, whatever. So that's not a bad thing to, to take a look at if you're still running Pulse, which, I mean, I'm not saying if you're still running Pulse, like judgmentally, I, I'm just saying, if you are running Pulse, that's something to look at. And I mean, frankly, you can look at it with Pipewire as well. Again, Pipewire is running in a Pulse audio mode, so it, it a lot of the Pulse audio tools just use, just, just look at Pipewire and can kind of tell you. Um, 
what you know what it thinks your system is like and if you look in there and see a bunch of dis, 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 uh, discrepancies then it might be worth switching back to pulse you know if you're on pipewire or if you're on pulse and you see discrepancies maybe investigate why a lot of times it's not a discrepancy it's just a confusing way of expressing something so i mean also mixer you know that 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 always lists five different speakers that aren't even attached to my system and it drives me just it's just so much information so much information pulse at least it tells me like what it can actually use right now it's, it's kind of refreshing uh pipewire still getting used to some sometimes it tells me what i can use sometimes it tells me twice of the things that i can use or not the thing that i want to use so it's it's tough it's really really um it's a complex system and i feel like pulse has really really made it a lot easier to just sort of understand sound on a Linux system. Is it perfect? No, I guess not, because Pipewire has a bunch of cool new features that Pulse Audio, yeah, kind of can do if you fiddle around with it enough, but Pipewire can do it easier, like routing sound internally and so on. So I'm a big fan of Pipewire, but I gotta say, Pulse Audio, in the, you know, 10 years of its... 10 plus 12 12 14 years of its kind of like reign i i think it did a really good job and is doing a good job of really making this the 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 complexity of of sound on a computer quite quite manageable and you know some people are are hearing that and they're just saying well that's not my experience (laughs) you know like uh sound on on computers sound on linux sound on open source blah 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 um but I, I just, I don't, I, I, I understand that it's complex and I'm acknowledging that it's complex, but at the same time, like, it's something that if you sit down and, and learn, then you can get really good at it. So it, it isn't a deficiency of the software with Pulse Audio. With also, it is a, it's a deficiency. There are some things with also you simply cannot do. And and that that bothered me like that that really really bugs me and, and I wouldn't want to be on a system with just Alsa that that is not enough for me that that is a deficiency Pulse you can you can do everything that you need and and then some fancy stuff you might have to load a module or something and make a fake uh, sound device and then like use the monitor of that fake device as your input bunch of hacks right but Pipewire at least on the trajectory that it is right now appears to be aiming towards where you don't even have to really do the hacks. You just get the functions, and that's fantastic. Okay, that's enough about Pulse, because I, I said I wanted to get through the P section, and I'm not through it, and I'm almost out of time. So, Pulse Audio, uh, that's done. Done, done. Pi, Pi Cairo. Pi Cairo is obviously a Python uh, library, or, or more specifically, it's Python bindings for the Cairo graphics library. And this... This kind of thing, we're gonna. I'm not gonna go through every single one in this list because there's a bunch of them. But this is the kind of thing that is just really exciting. This is one reason I think that Python is as popular as it is because this is the kind of thing where w- w- this this gives you power that you quote unquote shouldn't have. So Pi Cairo bindings. What is a binding. Well, a binding is basically a translation. There is a C library out there for Cairo. We've talked about it in the past. It's a graphics library. It helps you draw stuff on screen. Well, if you don't know C, 
Cairo is not useful to you at all. Oh wait, unless you know Python. Because thanks to these Python bindings, you can type Python and it'll go through Py, it'll use the Py Cairo module that you've you've installed on your system or that you have in this case installed on your system and and it will talk to the C library on your behalf, it being this library, this PyCairo library. It will trigger the C library on your behalf. You've talked Python, it translates your speech into C, and you get the pretty graphics on your screen. There's a great little demo application uh, on on the... Um, on the the opening page of PyCairo, it's pycairo.readthedocs.io. You'll see the demo application. Copy and paste it. Check it out. Now it only saves your uh, results to an SVG. It doesn't. It doesn't like pop up on your screen. It is. It, it's. It's. It is a very short example, so it isn't. You know, it's not going to be visually exciting at first. But you, if you run, if copy and paste that into a, a, a you know my demo. .py, and then run it, you'll get an example.svg, you'll open it up, you'll see a little Bezier curve. Is that exciting? I mean, yeah, actually it is. You're drawing graphics with code with a really nice library, Cairo, and, but you're just writing Python. Same thing goes for PyCups. Well, not exactly the same thing. PyCups, of course, is the Python bindings for the CUPS API, the CUPS API being the common Unix printing system, PyGObject, same deal. These are Python bindings for Gobject, Gobject two, no, I mean, Gobject three, uh, PyGTK. Same, same deal. You wanted to use GTK library? Well, you can't. Oh wait, yes, you can if you know Python. PyParsing. Uh, I don't know. PyParsing is PyParsing module is an alternative approach to ex- to creating and executing simple grammars, um, such as like like you might have done with like Lex and Yak which we've talked about a long time ago now. That was a long time ago, Lex and Yak. Uh, but yeah, there, there's PyParsing. Python Jinja 2, that's a templating system. So uh, Jinja is a way for you to write kind of simplified, well, templates, I guess, you know, simplified versions of something that you want in the end. And then you you send stuff to, you know, you, you apply your template to, to, to data and you open up whatever destination. Usually it's, in my experience, usually it's HTML. Um, maybe that's the only one, I don't know. Uh, but you open that up and then suddenly you've got a, a fully populated uh, document. It's a, it's a really nice system, Jinja 2. I, I used to kind of shy away from it because it felt very abstract. Like, well, why do I need to learn Jinja 2 in order to just just do this simple HTML thing? Well, you don't. But But if you do, then you can do more complex HTML things. Um, I don't use Jinja too much anymore. I used to. Uh, and I I use things that are inspired by it in my bash script that I use to post this podcast. Um, and by inspired by, I mean, I, yeah, very, very barely inspired by, but still, I mean, templating is great. It's a very important thing. Python markup safe. It's a library to keep text objects, text objects, uh, sort of to avoid um, really obvious sort of, you know, um, little mistakes when people say, um, I don't know, Python 
reboot, you know, and Python thinks, oh, it's time to reboot the computer now. Well, I meant Python quote reboot, not that Python reboot would actually reboot your system, but you know what I mean? Like you type something and it, it gets, it gets expanded as a, as, as a command or something instead of being considered as just just some text. It's a very important principle to to keep in mind. Python PyYaml. PyYaml parses YAML. We've talked about YAML before. Python Apters. Uh, this is a module for determining the platform appropriate directories. So if you need like the user's, user's data directory, what does that mean? On Linux, it might need, mean tilde or, you know, dollar sign home slash, no, that would be a dollar sign home. Um, whereas on Windows, it might be C colon slash slash documents, my documents. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Um, and so on. Python certify. That's a library to uh, keep track of all those little root certificates on your system, which could be important for your, uh, you know, your beautiful soup application that needs to connect to a web server and verify that it's uh, the, the correct server. Python CFFI, that's the C foreign function interface. And as that name suggests, it is a, a method of, of using C you know, functions from, from C, um, within your Python. And, and there's, there's a thing called, uh, what is it? Cython, C-Y-T-H-O-N, that, that kind of plays in the same space. But, but this, this is, I mean, it, this is, this is almost like that one, what is it? OS dot, sh, uh, OS dot shell function in Python, where you just kind of drop out of Python for a moment and you, you, you just run run a shell command. This is kind of you drop out of Python for a moment and just write some C code and and use C libraries and then you're back in Python doing your thing. So it, there's once again there's example um, documentation cffi dot read the docs dot io. There's a, a good little quick example of of how of how this can work. Um, I could read it, but I don't, I don't think it's all that interesting. I will say that, you know, if we were judging things on, uh, as they say, how Pythonic it is, I, I would not say that this feels very Pythonic, meaning that if you were to look at this code as a Python coder with no other coding experience, then you might, you probably, you, you quite likely wouldn't understand what it was doing. I, I don't think there's that much of a chance that you would understand this code. And I think, you know, I understand why that is the case, but I do believe that that, that is a little bit of, that's something, to, I guess, just to keep in mind. It, it would be beautiful if somehow it weren't like that. Like if it was more like, you know, C bi bindings for every C, for every possible C library for, for Python. Like, if if such if such a magical thing could exist, then that would be cool, is what I'm saying. Which you know, it's not worth a whole lot. I'm just saying you sometimes, especially Python coders, you, you hear something and people get very excited about it. Like, oh my gosh, you can do anything in Python. I mean, just think with CFFI, you can use any C library you'd ever want, and you think, oh my gosh, this sounds great. Python is magic, and then you look at it and you realize, oh wait. All you've done is given me the ability to basically exit Python in the middle of my code, write C, and then come back to Python. That's kind of all that happens. 
it's it's not pythonic okay that's not a criticism it's just it's just like the facts like this is not you're, this does not look like python code this is not python code you you you're not going to be you know you have to get out of your python mindset and and write different code and then and then you'll be writing python again so anyway um python dash i don't know how to say this care care debt it's character detection universal encoding detector for python 2 and 3 cardet.readthedocs.io it detects what kinds of characters something has is is giving it. That's that's what this is. Python car set normalizer. It's a character set normalizer. Python distro probably detects your distro. And and this list goes on and on and on for a long time. There's a bunch of different Python modules, and I have decided as of right now that I'm not going to go through them all. That's just too much. Um, because then we would be talking about Python and, and I don't feel like this is a necessarily a Python, uh, podcast as such. All of these modules are really, really useful for, uh, a lot of the different things that you can do with Python. And I think it's probably worth looking at these or not, but I mean, you, you can look at these and get an idea of all the different spaces that Python can mess around in. And it's just kind of shocking at how much space there is within Python. I mean, it, it truly, truly does. It's just everywhere. And that's, I mean, as much as I don't like Python, and there are lots of things I don't like about Python, I have done an episode pretty much comparing Lua with Python. Um, and, 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 and I'm pretty clear on, on the, the parts of, of sort of Python that, that I don't love. So you can listen to, uh, 432, episode 432. You can listen to, um, episode, what is this? Oh, this is 12x26. 12x26 is my episode, is my episode about, uh, seven reasons you should be using Lua. And I, I, I call Python out on several of these things, um, because I just, you know, I have problems with some portions of Python. So that's 1226 and 432, uh, I think is what I said for Python stuff. But I think, you know, as much as I, I dislike Python, I, I, I actually like Python even more <laughs> because Python honestly was the first language, computer language that I really truly wrapped my head around. Like it really was like Python was my gateway into sort of messing around with programming. I mean, I think, you know, to be fair, I think that Python also taught me a bunch of bad habits that, that I, I, or maybe Python didn't. The, the things that I read about how to get started with Python taught me a lot of bad habits that I had to unlearn for lots of other languages. Now, I think actually Python did as well. I think Python kind of taught me some bad, bad programming concepts, um, or maybe it didn't teach me important good ones, but Python is still like, no matter how you feel about like writing Python, which I mean, you know, I can think of worse fates for sure than, than, than getting to write Python code for a living. Like that's not, <laughs> you're doing pretty well, but, um, whether you like it or not, or whether you think it could be better or not. And I mean, there's so much room there, right? I mean, come on, it, everything can be better, right? So, I mean, yes, I love Python, but it could be better. Great. If that's how you feel, 
Like Python is everywhere and it's a it's a beautifully simple and sensible language and, and it's it's great. It really is. It's it's a beautiful thing. And I think that there are so many Python libraries in here just hiding out on the system kind of speaks to that. Like this is this is why Python, well this is why Python is ubiquitous, I guess. Look at all this stuff. We've got a, a graphics library. We've got oh I didn't even I skipped this one pycurl there's a python bindings for the curl command so there's pycurl um there's pygobject pygtk which I, I i heard that that wasn't really even supported anymore so i don't know if i'd use that but anyway pyaml pyapters for os you know system level stuff python distro for again system level stuff uh pydocutils for for document formatting for your r um, our RST documents, Python future time travel, Python markdown for parsing markdown, Python pillow for image library stuff, like basically image magic or, or, or not image magic, but a, a, an image processing library pillow, uh, Python, well, C parser, Python, um, random, Python setup tools for packaging, Python 6 for migrating your Python 2 code to Python 3, which, by the way, is a really, really useful thing. I've used it on several, I mean, I used it all the time back when 2 was being end-of-lifed, but I, I still use it today, Py6. I still use that today to, to, to quickly translate a Python 2 to Python 3 application. doesn't always work, depending on how old that Python 2 application is, or, or how how old, really, the libraries that it's depending on are. Um, but but it, it very frequently does work, and, and, and that's great. Python URL lib and the certify and all these other things for network, uh, for network communication and, and uh, certification, security uh, uh, verification. Uh, Python 2 module collection. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff. Um, and I think, I think one thing to note is that a lot of these are Python 2 libraries. And it's also important to note, ultimately, that all of these um, these Python libraries here are system libraries. They are being used by stuff that is installed on Slackware. As a Python programmer, whether you're experienced or, or just learning, as the programmer, you wouldn't be using these libraries. Like these Python modules, even if they're here, I mean, first of all, it won't be here. These are Python 2 modules, I think. I think universally these are Python 2. I, I don't believe any of these are Python 3. If they are, they're not marked as such very well. Um, but these are, you wouldn't use these. It is the Python methodology to instead create a virtual environment. And the way that you do that is you go into, you make a directory called demo, for instance. I'm going to go into the demo directory. And now I'm going to do Python 3 dash m for module, v-e-n-v, oops, v-e-n-v, uh, and then we'll call v-e-n-v dot. So we'll just create a virtual environment, that's what the v-e-n-v stands for, in the current directory, which again, I've, I've created a demo directory so that I pollute my environment for this very reason. And then on top of all that, I would do a source dot slash bin slash uh, uh, slash activate and then I get my prompt back 
but my prompt now is preceded by the word parentheses demo close parentheses meaning that i am now in my in my terminal i am in a virtual environment i'm in a python virtual environment which also means that whenever i type in python now I'm actually using the Python version instantiated by this virtual environment. And if I were to do, for instance, a Python 3-m pip install pi uh, Cairo, well, it's installing pi Cairo, but it's doing it only into this virtual environment. So you're managing your your libraries basically on a on a hyper local level. Like you're you're doing this here in in this virtual environment. And so you can program all you want and test stuff off of these libraries that you've installed and then package it up and send it to pl to people. And you know, as long as they're also Python, um, you, they know how to run Python stuff, then they'll be able to do the same thing. They can do a Python 3-mpip-r setup.txt or whatever, requirements.txt, I think. Uh, and then that'll install all their libraries into their virtual environment or into their onto their computer. Uh, and then they'll be using your application with all the libraries that they required, and it'll be the most up-to-date libraries and so on. So in other words, Python has its own package manager. And the intent for Python these days is essentially that, that Python... That, that you as the developer create an environment, load it up with all the latest versions of the libraries, run your code in that environment, develop in that environment, and then you can send it out into the world pretty sure that you've accounted for every library. Why are you sure? Well, because you've been able to use its package manager to to list all of the modules you've loaded into your virtual environment, and that way you know exactly what people need to run your application. At least those are the theories. Now, in practice, how are you really going to manage that? Do you really know that it's going to work on a Windows machine after you've tested it for eight years on Linux, or eight days on Linux? Doesn't matter. Like, however sure you are that it's working on Linux, are you really sure it's going to work on Windows or on Mac OS X, uh, 10, whatever they call it now? Um, and who knows? Like, that's that's one of those things that, unfortunately, there's still a lot of sort of trial and error around. But in terms of the libraries, that is that virtual environment. You're going to use local libraries, local modules, not the stuff installed on your system, because if you... If you rely on the stuff that's listed in Slackware slash L directory here, then then you might be developing on an old version of that library, you, which is, in fact, in this case, is very true. You'd be developing off of Python too, um, or you might be developing something and then forget that. Oh yeah, I used uh, Python um, dash markup safe on this, and I never. I never wrote that down anywhere, so now I've got this Python application out there that's not even listing that as a requirement, and it's not working for anybody, or it's working up until a point, and then it crashes, and I can't figure out why. So the virtual environment sort of concept, the 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 idea that there's a requirements.txt that Py, uh, Python pip can parse and and then install the the dependencies for all of that that's kind of the python way and and it's cool it really really works well when it works well i mean it it also doesn't work all the time there are there are ways for you to break that like and it usually involves giving it to someone who just doesn't have any idea that python exists doesn't care doesn't know what what they what they need for this thing to install um and it, it can get 
complex and, and double that if you were sending it to someone on, not on the platform that you've developed for. Way around that? Sure, there's lots of ways. One way is to um, learn Java. Uh, and that's it. That's the P section of the L software set, which means that in the next episode, we start on the Q section. So we are getting close. We are getting close to the end of the L's. That's really, really exciting. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Doesn't match. Now these are the clues. Have a look at this.